Hello, and welcome back. I'm Asher Maxwell. I'm Ryan Estrin. I'm Jack Young. And you're listening to 440 Views from the Hill. podcast to discuss um, developing events in Ukraine. But before we begin, I would like to introduce our very, very special guest today. Uh, Junior Jack Young uh, will be joining the podcast and providing some additional commentary. Uh, But first, let's... uh, Yeah, so Jack, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself politically? And one of the questions we uh, asked at the beginning of the show to introduce ourselves is, if you could make one individual president of the United States right now, who would you choose? Um, hey, I'm Jack. Um, uh, so I'll do the f- introductory stuff first. Uh, I'm seen as pretty left-wing, although I don't really label myself as any particular way. I have individual thoughts on the subjects. Um, um, I'm also more in-depth on philosophy than politics sometimes, so I think about not really um, Democrat, Republican, but more you know structural stuff. Um, for the individual president stuff, I'd probably say Slavoj Žižek. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> for those of you who do not know, Slava Žižek is a, a Slovenian a, philosopher, a, a Slovenian philosopher who loves to embrace the works of Hegel um, and Lacan, Hegel and Lacan, and Liber yeah, Marx yeah. running there. Yeah. Oh, legend! <laughs> what a legend! Um, All right, so yeah, thanks for having me on, y'all. Yes, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Slava Kijek's a real choice. So today we will be discussing um, primarily the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I don't know, boys. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start at the beginning? Yeah, I guess I should start by saying I was pretty wrong. Uh, yeah. I said Russia was not going to invade. I Yeah, I, they did invade mm-hmm. all the way. I, I, I was I completely must, wrong. I must also take full responsibility for my faulty prediction. Um, I think I was listening to, to our past podcast uh, just in preparation for this one, and... Uh, you know, Ryan and I were both pretty pessimistic about the chances that um, Putin was going to invade, or I should say rather... Optimistic. Uh, <laughs> optimistic. We did not want Putin to yes, invade. exactly. And we did not think he was. Um, I th- the point I was making was essentially that, like, the sanctions would be so harsh against Putin that he would never want to invade. And I think that, you know, the sanctions part definitely did come true, but I- apparently we... Um, underestimated Putin's uh, willingness to ex- embrace an absolute chaos and uh, faulty foreign policy. So, yeah, we got to own up to that. Um, I think maybe a good starting point would be how should the West have changed its policy? And we can start way back when at the fall of the Soviet Union to prevent an event like this from ever occurring. Ryan, do you have any immediate takes? Uh, well, yeah, I do. Uh, so I think it goes back to, you know, Clinton, a little bit Bush, but especially Clinton. When Gorbachev is sort of negotiating with the West towards the end of the Soviet Union, you sort of see when the Germany reunites, there's this official, like the U.S. is effectively on record as saying NATO will not go one inch uh, east. They're not going to expand at all. Uh, they won't even go into G- Germany. That was part of the deal for reunion. That immediately is broken as the Soviet Union collapses. And what we've seen is, especially under Clinton, you see this massive expansion of NATO that's continued since then. Uh, it's pushed all the way to the you know Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland. Uh, so it's all the it's all the way east now. Uh, and Ukraine has been looking to join for a while. This has been like a clear, direct antagonization of Russia. Uh, this sort of policy was continuing to keep that sort of Cold War view of Russia going, while at the same time we engaged in just a complete economic pillaging of the Russian country, like like living standards collapsed, you see oligarchs rise, you know, shock doctrine economics are in full effect here, Um, and what ultimately happens is Russia's forced to be incredibly weak and is still being antagonized by the United States. So preventing that from ever happening would have been, you know, a key step in preventing Russia doing what they did a few weeks back. Mm -hmm. Um, On that note, I just have one question for you, which is that if Russia, if Putin did not have designs on kind of re- 
incarnating the Russian Empire or the, the states that were under the Soviet Union, or I should rather say the nations that were under the state of the Soviet Union, why would the expansion of NATO have been seen as a threat if Russia had no intentions of kind of expanding beyond that? Because putting like Western aligned nations with Western like American troops in them, American missiles in them, is something that is like just directly antagonistic. Keeping NATO in that form it still clearly is something designed to prevent some kind of Eastern power, which is obviously Russia in this case. Eastern European power, that is. Um, um, which is still, regardless of who you are, that's antagonizing. I mean, yeah. A point that Putin has brought up in the past to justify his aggression is that, um, you know, I think it was back in the 1990s, uh, during this transition, Putin asked Clinton if Cl- if the Americans would have been on board with Russia joining NATO, and Clinton said no. So I'm wondering, Ryan, do you think that way back when, if we had considered well, incorporating Russia into NATO, would this have, I guess, addressed the problems with NATO or potentially This avoided? actually goes back to the founding of NATO. When NATO was first founded, not many people know this, but Russia, well, a little bit into its founding, asked to join NATO. One of the main reasons they did this, of course, was to prove the West was trying to antagonize them, which, of course, they did when the West denied them joining NATO, which forces the West to, or the East to form the Warsaw Pact. And what you see is this, you know, as America extends its empire through NATO into to Western Europe, what you're ultimately seeing is this sort of allowing you, you know, this sort of NATO control of Western Europe. And you're right, I think letting Russia into NATO or doing what kind of Yeltsin wanted, which was using sort of the already existing European commissions that Russia is part of, to sort of create a more like kind of Gaullist style Europe as its own sort of power that includes Russia would have been a better approach. But America would have never let that happen because sort of a Gaullist, you know, in the sense of Gaul, uh, or even Yeltsin to that extent, would never have allowed America to exist in Western Europe like they do today. Before I offer my two cents, Jack, do you have any uh, observations or Um, contra takes? uh, I think Ryan's pretty, but I I would agree with a lot of what Ryan says. I think that uh, the sort of geopolitics the U.S. engages in, there's going to be inevitable responses by um, countries like Russia um, when they feel antagonized. I would say that um, I would say that Russia maybe perhaps unlike China is more of an aggressive assertive power even though China has been antagonized as well by the U.S. I would say that perhaps Russia is unique in that regard. Um, however, um, perhaps more right on the response to uh, Ukraine probably than Ryan is. Um, so we can talk about that later. But I think sort of the historical background, I think Ryan's pretty much correct. I think this stems from uh, the U.S. desire to extend hegemony um, and its empire in Europe. Um, so um, contra Russia, of course. So um, yeah, I think Ryan's pretty much correct. In that mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to have to pretty much agree with Jack and Ryan here. I think that you know, although Russian nationalism to some extent is inevitable, when the U.S. Um, and other Western allies kind of refuse to incorporate Russia into, um, you, you know, uh, institutions like NATO, we kind of positioned them as um, a country that we saw as, you know, inherently um, maybe inferior to us or different than us. And in that way, we kind of stoked the flames of Russian nationalism. Does that justify it? Obviously not. But it is kind of a consequence of U.S. foreign policy. And I think that um, had, uh, uh, you know, Reagan, Clinton, Bush been a little bit more um, willing to kind of see Russia as a counterpart and not an inferior state in the early years, we could have maybe avoided this uh, rise in uh, nationalism that has culminated in Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But at the same time, you know, you you have to kind of understand that there is a long tradition of that in that um, in all countries, nationalism uh, is, you know, kind of going to be an inevitable part of the politics of that state. Um, And so I think that maybe what explains this Russian aggression more than the NATO expansion is, uh, you know, just the fact that Russia um, feels like they are a, or deserve to be a superpower on the world stage. And, uh, you know, this kind of stems from the, the people's own pride in their own country, their own patriotism and nationalism. And so these kind of reactions are almost inevitable, although there are certainly steps the U.S. could take to avoid it becoming, you know, um, antagonistic or aggressive. Um, I think perhaps if we look at Russia as a country now, we can see um, sort of some of the failures of Russia, i.e. the economy is quite bad. Uh, a lot of the citizens are aging and they're all uh, alcoholics for the most part. 
Um, Russia, um, I, I would consider this attack on Ukraine um, to be sort of um, sort of versionary in that sense, right? Because Russia is a declining state um, in the world, um, and so is the U.S. Um, but we can talk. I mean, I think China is the more important like power in the actual geopolitical context. But um, Russia's efforts to sort of assert itself in this way, because it's failed to do so economically um, in other means, is sort of um, an important thing to detail here about um, the invasion of Ukraine. I think that in that context, if that is correct, then Russia is much less of a threat to you know the actual world stage, the geopolitical, the liberal order, whatever, um, than a country like China. But this does prove the failure of the liberal international order in a lot of ways to um, go against aggressive powers who want to assert themselves. Um, and also, um, Professor Talmadge talked about this, you know, the, um, was it stability and stability paradox, right? Where uh, with nuclear weapons, some countries are going to be um, smaller conflicts are going to be largely inevitable, and we can sort of draw. I, this parallel has been drawn before. Um, maybe we can talk about this if you want to. But you know, with China and Taiwan, right? Um, um, even though I think that is a little bit different than Russia and Ukraine, I still think it's important to consider um, how the U.S., NATO, etc., um, respond to aggressive powers that want to operate against their um, sort of understanding of liberal hegemony. Mm-hmm. There's one more point I want to make here, which is that, and this is maybe where I would disagree more with Ryan, although I, I certainly think that Ryan disagrees with the, the main point of this, which is that I think the domestic politics of Russia explain their aggression much more than maybe uh, Western foreign policy. I think, although the Western foreign policy could have certainly could have abated this, and Ryan alluded to this in his speech, but... Uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when political and economic power was concentrated in the hands of oligarchs under Yeltsin, that made democracy, particularly liberal democracy, pretty much uh, uh, unworkable in a country like Russia. And there's rigorous political science uh, studies that prove that you know economic inequality and democracy are contradictory um, uh, contradictory phenomena. You know, you can't really have both at the same time. And so, when you know all of these natural resources suddenly uh, were privatized in an attempt to kind of embrace capitalist Western style um, liberalism. And those private, the, the rewards and the benefits of those, that privatization went to oligarchs and were not distributed in a way that would be that would foster democracy. And so I think that like the the cardinal sin here, or the original mistake that is now responsible for the state that Russia is in, is the you know the concentration of political and economic power in the hands of a few, um, without attempting to redistribute those resources. So I think you know, and that could have been done, uh, encouraged by Western allies. So certainly the U.S. and the West have share blame for that. It's also a mistake of Yeltsin and the Russian politicians at the time. But I mean, I think I, there's a few factors here. I think, yeah, I think the economic thing you're talking about with sort of Russia is not being able to exist as a democracy. You're right. I think you're downplaying the U.S.'s role in just like heavily focusing on this sort of privatization, this uh, shock therapy economic style of just forcing Russia into becoming part of the international monetary system, accepting all of the dollar hegemony, uh, embracing sort of selling off these assets, making the economy more and more public just so they can, you know, build and get, you know, U.S. backing, get sort of things that were important. And I, I, Yeltsin was completely ineffective and did nothing. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right that liberal democracy isn't existing in Russia now a lot for large reasons because of what you see with Yeltsin and Putin and the oligarchs. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily think that is like the explanatory factor uh, for like this conflict. I Putin is still relatively popular in Russia. The Russia's economy is still strengthening, even though it is having these aging crises and it is still, you know, has some hard times. Uh, but, you know, you see Nord Stream 2 was about to come online, which would have given Russia another pipeline into Germany, which desperately needs Russian oil. Not desperately, but definitely relies on it. Um, and what you find is sort of Putin's actions here are less driven by I think in my, you know, domestic motivators, he's, this has been one of the more unpopular things he's done. This has sparked massive protests. Mm-hmm. Sure, you've seen uh, internal protests in Russia for a while, but he still, even if elections were legitimate in Russia, most in Western NGOs agree that Putin probably would still win most of these elections. 
just because his personal popularity is quite high. He doesn't drink, which is something Jack brought up earlier, that Russians was a huge alcoholism problem. He's seen as kind of a strong guy. He helped save, bring back the economy in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, and he's generally been somebody who's been more willing to stand up to Western powers, which to some extent Russians are in favor of doing. Um, the other thing that I think is worth recognizing and talking about is Ukraine, while arguably a more functional liberal democracy, suffers from almost identical issues as, uh, Russia. What you see is the differences, unlike in Russia where you had Putin successfully consolidate the oligarchs, you see in around when you have the um, revolution about 2014, there was kind of a movement under, of that president at the time to do that. And Western NGOs ally with, you know, uh, these sort of big oligarchs and Western really rich people. You see like Soros was actually a big part of these. Um, it's true, he was. It's not like a, you know, there is, he was funding, he, he regularly funds NGOs in Eastern Europe. Uh, you see a lot of other big billionaires and oligarchs like that who back certain candidates, back certain people, and push for these very astroturfed revolutions that, you know, further, you know, when you see this 2014 revolution, further antagonizes Russia against the Western powers. Um, before we move on to, I guess, kind of the what should the West do now question, do, is anybody else have any other observations? Uh, no, I think. I mean, I think geopolitics based on hegemony are bad. So, yeah, and un- largely unsustainable. I guess one thing that I think is worth mentioning now, and maybe some either of you have an opinion on this, is that, and I think Jack would agree with me at least based on what he's already said, is that the time of sort of unipolarity is on a decline at least, and potentially at an end. Uh, I think like what you're seeing is obviously Russia and China are asserting their regional hegemony far more clearly than they have been for the past few decades. And America is is objectively losing a lot of these conflicts, declining, losing its place across the world. So it's sort of this change in the global order that I think sort of Jack, or maybe would agree with me, but at least myself, viewing these things through sort of how you deal with imperialism, it requires a shift in understanding how different countries' imperial actions are not canceling each other out or justified. Yeah, well, frankly, Ryan, I hope you would agree with yourself, but uh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, I think that uh, the only other observation I want to make, and maybe this will lead to us going on some tangent and we never get to back to the question that we wanted to ask, but I think that the best way, so yes, I actually agree with Ryan, like U.S. unipolarity is pretty much um, impossible to sustain, even you see kind of an emergence of leaders um, that are in, in, in alliances with the U.S., like Germany and France kind of taking a much bigger leadership role in Europe, Russia, expanding their sphere of influence, China expanding their sphere of influence, its sphere of influence even countries like India, um, Iran, Saudi Arabia, but I think that the, the best way the U.S. can respond to this is by making uh, international institutions like the um, UN, like you know, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, all of these um, you know institutions that make up the liberal international order, we need to make them country neutral. And what I mean by that is not positioning the U.S. as the leader of these institutions, or uh, you know, as somehow, but as as a, a mere member of those institutions. Because when we do that, we can hopefully incorporate China and Russia and all countries into those institutions, which might make them you know um, less less willing to promote things like uh, you know the liberal values of of the United States, but it might actually make them into effective institutions um, and, and institutions that will last the decline in unipolarity. Yeah, I think that's sort of an interesting point on sort of how the UN and like IMF and stuff should be viewed. I think we sort of disagree on how they should be used. I think to me, I don't think there's any way in which a the sort of World Bank um, UN organization, in theory, I think there is a way that maybe the UN could be not necessarily quite as imperial. Uh, but I think a different way to sort of view these organizations is not even so much in this traditional like East-South or East-West like Cold War um, mentality, but more in this sort of North-South uh framework that exists where you see the sort of third world or developing nations, whatever you want to call them today, um, forced into taking all these loans on, being forced into these sort of subservient positions at all of these institutions, uh, subject to intervention without uh, real like questioning. Uh, and what that, I think, regardless of what you get when you have like an IMF that's quote unquote country neutral, is you get the more powerful countries, whether that end up being the US, China, Russia in alliance or not, you get this sort of 
northern imperialism against the global south that isn't acceptable, and I don't think you find these institutions can truly be country neutral because these sort of global neoliberal, these sort of neoliberal necessities of these sort of stronger nations, whether that be the U.S., whether that becomes some European institution, whether that be China, um, need to expand their markets, need to grow and produce profit for the, you know, domestic, you know, oligarchs. Okay, now we can move on to the question of how the United States and the West should respond to Russia's invasion now. Obviously, the U.S. has already taken plenty of steps, uh, mostly economic, but those are still drastic measures, including sanctioning Russia's central bank. Uh, you know, today we found out that Maersk, the international shipping company who, you know, does a ton of shipping has just decided that they're not going to trade with Russia. So this is just the latest in a string of events that have essentially cut off Russia's economy from the global economic system. Um, but like, what else uh, do we think the West or Russia, or you, the West and the United States should do uh, to, I guess, prevent Russia's further well, aggression? Well, I think I'm going to differ the most on this. Uh, and that I think what we've already done is sort of wrong. Uh, and to some extent, what I think we're seeing now is that you're right, we're going to just completely economically cripple uh, Russia, which I'm not necessarily in favor of. I'm not inherently opposed to like personal sanctions on oligarchs, but essentially I generally find sanction regimes on nations to be both ineffective at doing anything in terms of forcing countries to stop their expansion or stop being authoritarian and just directly harmful to the people because the people that it kills are just average civilians who are ultimately antagonized by these sanctions. Uh, and on top of that, I think what we need to do is not, you know, arm Ukraine necessarily, not focus on sort of these direct military tactics, and that, but I think we need to focus on sort of two fronts, one of these being humanitarian aid. I think that's objectively good, whether it be refugees accepting, uh, sending, you know, humanitarian packages, stuff like that. That is, you know, done not necessarily through U.S. institutions like USAID, which is really just an extension of American empire, uh, but done through sort of potentially some kind of independent organizations or more Eastern, even friendly organizations. And the other thing is I think the U.S. and Russia need to, and NATO as an institution, and you've seen uh, the mo probably the most prominent person who's been willing to talk about this and frame it this way is uh, Yanis Varoukovis, who's the former Greek finance uh, minister, and he's very much big on talking about this sort of NATO expansion and working to agree to not expand NATO and talking with Russia on sort of creating a neutral Ukraine, I think is the best way to prevent further escalation, further conflict, and further death. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree, disagree with Ryan on the sanctions and arming question. I do think that uh, economic sanctions like this can be effective in the short term, both to serve as a deterrent for future Russian aggression and uh, to put pressure on Putin to come to the negotiating table. I think that the end goal here should be avoiding, uh, you know, Putin creating a um, puppet state in Ukraine, one that, you know, is not, or, 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 and one that would, you know, would um, steal the sovereignty of the Ukrainian people and rob them of kind of the, the state that they generally would prefer and one that would be probably much more willing to listen to their interests as opposed to the criminal's interests. So that has got to be objective number one. I think that the sanctions can help us achieve that by putting intense pressure on Russia to abandon the conflict and maybe settle for um, some much smaller gains instead of embracing, uh, you know, a full-scale uh, annexation of Ukraine. So I think that... Do you think there's an example of sanctioned regimes doing that or, like, anything close to that? I'm not versed enough in uh, U.S. the like U.S. foreign policy history to cite an example. I know um, that like in this instance, we can see uh, Putin uh, kind of showing um, maybe a willingness to negotiate that he wouldn't have as a response to sanctions. I think that there's also a difference between the sanctions that we're imposing on Russia now and the sanctions that we are imposing on a state like. Um, Iran or other countries where we've tried this in the past because there is a much more kind of interest on behalf of Putin. Well, you know, for one, we've never imposed them on a, a country this big. And I think Putin is much more interested in, um, you know, 
having Russia play a world a role on the world stage, and he cannot do that if he's completely shut off. I think that you know Iran was much more focused on kind of creating a theocracy that is dependent and or that is independent of the West, and I think that Putin is much more interested in becoming a world leader, and that can only be accomplished by engaging in with other countries. So the the long story short there is that I think that uh, the sanctions will kind of be unique when they apply to Russia because Putin cares about the consequences of them much more. It also is putting a lot of pressure on oligarchs and the Russian people to kind of um, uh, find a way out of this conflict. So I, I think the end goal is that Russia kind of comes to the negotiating table and that maybe they settle for their losses. Maybe we accept the independence of republics like the Donetsk and the other one whose name is escaping me now uh, in exchange for Ukraine's independence and maybe um, agreements regarding whether NATO Ukraine becomes a member of NATO. So I think that's kind of the end goal here. Yeah, I guess my only comment on that is I don't think Obama's 2014 sanctions did anything, albeit these are much harsher. Um, beyond hurt the Russian people, I don't think that changed Russian foreign policy at all. And if anything, it pushed Russia to being a more autarkic state that is more capable of economically self-sustaining itself, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, sort of, what else? On, like, just generally sort of this arms deal, I think, and we'll disagree a little bit on this, and you say you're more okay with that. Well, he's definitely wrong in the past to say about Eastern Ukraine, quote, it's just a bunch of neo-Nazis anyway, who cares? Um, I I still think that, like, there's definitely a bad idea. It's not a great idea to just, like, do hand out mass civilian arms. I do think that what we're going to see is a growth in organizations like the OUNB, the Right Sector, the Azov Battalion, which if you're not familiar with any of these organizations, they're all neo-fascist, neo-Nazi organizations that are based out of Ukraine um, and that have been fighting in eastern Ukraine for a long time now. They're also big in the uh, 2014 revolution and helped push that along. And Putin has used these organizations as justification for his invasion, which, of course, is going to only grow these organizations as nationalism just, like, inevitably rises in a world where, uh, you know, invasion happens. Uh, So I think that's sort of my fear with... That's one of my fears with, you know, giving Ukrainians guns. It's just, like, handing them out to civilians or uh, neo-Nazis is generally not something I'm in favor of doing. Uh, And on top of that, I think that just further antagonizes Russia when I think we should be pushing for more peaceful resolutions now rather than, you know, direct armed conflict. So two things I want to say there. First of all, is I think that the arms could actually make a difference in the conflict in that it, they could prolong the conflict enough or allow the Ukrainians to sustain an armed resistance to the Russians enough to the point where Putin feels like he has to come to the negotiating table or uh, to the point that... Uh, well, the negotiating table's already been opened. They've well, sure. In Belarus. Fine. Maybe, maybe not... Maybe not uh, come to the negotiating table, but actually take it seriously and uh, well, why do you not come think to an the agreement? Agreement. The meeting in Belarus is going to be anything serious. Like Zelensky and well, Putin have agreed to meet in Belarus. Like why will that not sure, go anywhere? Sure. I guess my point is that we need to ensure that there is pressure in uh, that maximum pressure uh, on Putin to actually come to a peaceful accord there. Like uh, like it might be true. That as of now, Putin and Zelensky will agree to a very favorable agreement for the Ukrainians. But I, I think that to be maximally sure that that is the case, we need to, um, you know, sustain Ukrainian resistance and put pressure economically on Putin. Another point I want to make is that there are obviously a lot of other countries Russia is interested in uh, reincorporating into the Russian Empire, and I think that uh, if we can put sanctions on Russia this time and show the Russian people that the world will not, or the Russians, that show Putin that the world will not tolerate his aggression. He will be less likely to advance into other countries in the region. The other thing I want to say is that, like, I think Ryan's idea that becoming, uh, approaching this peacefully and coming to kind of uh, being like, oh, Putin, we'll, we'll, let's, let's come to an agreement here. When Putin is very clearly being the aggressor, showing that sign of weakness might be kind of the opposite of what we need, because I think, um, you know, this Ukrainian invasion was, in some ways, you could make the case that it was provoked by some Western actions, such as trying to incorporate Russia, Putin, Ukraine into NATO. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was pretty much Putin's um, aggressive overreaction at best. And at worst, it was his just outright um, decision to uh, invade Ukraine unprovoked. And either way, I think that it proves that, you know, 
coming to the negotiating table might not be the best policy or sorry, trying to be um, a, trying to appease Russia and Putin might not be the best policy when it comes to Putin. So I guess the obvious question for you now is like you're right about Putin potentially wanting like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland. Uh, do you think Article 5, like, is there a world where Putin ignores NATO, invades, and triggers Article 5? Five, like, do you I think don't, he'd ever do that? I don't think so. So my question then is, with so the only country I think you might agree, you might disagree, that Putin really would have ambitions on at this point would be maybe Georgia, but probably Finland would be those two countries. So, like, my so, question yeah. is, like, where does Putin go next, and why does that mean that we need to be, like, super strong? Two things. First of all, is the reason we need to resist regression those, aggression in those countries is that because, you know, fundamentally, we should believe that nations should govern themselves and that yeah. people should have authority over their government. The same reason that the colonies revolted from England, you know, the people who live far away should not govern another country that lives entirely differently than the, the country that is being governed. Sorry, I got lost my sentence there. But I think that um, my point, uh, the, the other thing here is that if we are not showing resolve in protecting Ukraine, um, that Putin might not find our Article 5 commitment credible, credible, in which case he does try to test NATO, which could be much more disastrous. Yeah, I think that's, you know, potentially a risk. But I mean, I think within the context of Ukraine, just escalatory spirals that could develop out of there. And uh, Jack's already brought up Talmadge once today. Uh, sort of the risk of small scale and potentially from Putin's side, you know, viewing the West as what they're doing is antagonistic, thinking that means him to either use new, to deploy tactical, tactical nuclear weapons or activate some kind of invasion of another country that sort of, do you think there's a risk of U.S., I mean, in my view anyway, there's a risk of U.S. further antagonization of Russia and turn pushes Putin to feel more like he needs to uh, push harder on uh, what Ukraine. What you've seen so far is as he's become more and more frustrated with the Ukrainian defense, which has been pretty sufficient, uh, he's become more and more willing to let, let let the army go loose. Like the initial evasion was very, I mean, obviously civilian casualties happened, which is horrible, but it was very focused on trying to prevent as many of those as possible just because it looks bad. Um, and I think what you're noticing is as time's gone on, he's gotten a little bit more angry uh, at the lack of progress. And you've noticed there's been a few more airstrikes that have happened that have been far more aggressive, uh, which is, I think, a risk that you have by kind of prolonging this war. Yeah, I think that my point, this goes back to my point earlier, which is that the long game is to get Putin to uh, accept a peace in Ukraine. And I think that uh, if we can, res if Ukraine can successfully resist him enough, that is the outcome that would happen as the outcome the U.S. should embrace. I think the alternative to that is just trying to attempt uh, to entirely um, repel the Russian invasion, and that might be more risky, which probably oh. would include things like, you know, the West pretty much going yeah. to war with Russia. So I think we, we both obviously agree that coming to the negotiating table is the answer. Yes. Um, and I think the only other thing I want to add there really quickly is that, like, so Putin has, as this invasion has gone wrong for him, Putin has done things like put his nuclear forces on high alert and I think the West did exactly what it should have or sorry the United States did exactly what it should have which is to not respond by putting our nuclear weapons on high alert by calling Putin's bluff by obviously showing to the world that nuclear escalation is not something that we are interested in not something that we think Putin will consider I think like on top of that uh, policy and you might disagree or disagree like it's sort of a no first use policy from the West even going a step further on sort of our current nuclear stance would be a effective way to at least show Putin that like the US is not planning on going like full nuclear like counterforcing options on Russia uh, which I mean there might be downsides to doing that policy I think that would be generally like at least a way to allow the US to continue to agree that invasions of Ukraine is bad without directly antagonizing Putin in a way that risks nuclear conflict. Yeah, I'm 100% on board with the no first use policy. I think that there's no situation in which the United States would ever or should ever use its nuclear weapons before another country has. Jack, anything? Um, no. I think the uh, individual solutions to this conflict are not super important, um, mainly just because um, I feel like this conflict is a crisis of Russian identity and a conflict of Western, quote, American whatever identity. Um, and I think that um, 
the conflict is scary for a lot of people because it's a European country that the U.S. is sort of losing its grasp on, like a white country, country that's on the Middle East. Yeah. That is sort of, um, and that feels sort of scary for people, I feel like. Um, um, I don't think that these countries, as are, are going to ever be in a situation where they're going to cooperate on anything. So I think that their national identities, as is, are competitive to the point where um, rigorous international solutions to these problems are not necessarily going to be the panacea that the crisis needs. I think this uh, represents more of a crisis of you know the the hegemony and geopolitics of the U.S. versus the revisionism of Russia, as well as failed liberalism in Russia. We can see this through massive discrepancies there, oligarchs, etc. Um, and I think that we will, um, that regardless of what the West does, and regardless of what Russia does, there will be more conflicts like this, um, just because of the nature of declining U.S. influence that cannot be reconciled. Um, so perhaps some international institutions will address this. Uh, I feel like Russia is antagonistic to the point where they probably will reject those institutions in the first place. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So, really quick, or I, didn't, I want to transition to other topics. So do you have anything I was to add to just that? Just add a little bit. Okay, yeah, go ahead and do that. I guess just like, I think the point, point that Jack made that is worth looking at is sort of the fact that this is a European in America, at least in the way Americans view race, white nation, uh, and sort of that definitely poses a different fear for Americans. I think it's why you've seen the foreign policy establishment go so crazy over this. You know, in the same time frame that Russia's done this invasion, uh, Israel has launched airstrikes on Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, and the U.S. has launched strikes in Somalia, killing civilians of both of those. Uh, so I think what you're seeing is that this is the first conflict that I th- the Americans as a population have really had to deal with where the enemy or like the, the person that's being attacked in this is not some sort of traditionally otherized Muslim subject, but a white Christian person. Uh, and sort of, I think there's some sort of unique way in which Americans typically sympathize with people that this is causing more crisis within the foreign policy establishment. I think that sort of racialization of uh, foreign policy is something that needs to be addressed along with sort of resolutions to these conflicts. I 100% agree with that, and I certainly don't want to downplay the existence of that in the narrative, but I don't think that... I, th- I do think that there's something unique to this conflict, and this, that what what is that is that... Um, Russia is a country that has largely kind of participated in to some extent, at least to an extent more than the other countries we're discussing, but the international order and international institutions, and I think that that this is a a new step by a country like Russia to entirely reject the borders of another nation and invade. Um, You know, I think that other instances where invasions like this have occurred in the past are not entirely comparable because Russia's Russia. Russia is not a small state. It is not a state that is, you know, kind of like North Korea in the sense that it's like just kind of a, a rogue nation. I think to my sort of way in which I sort of maybe Ash and I this is an agreement or a disagreement. I'm honestly not entirely sure. Probably um, a disagreement. <laughs> is that like I think you're sort of right that there is something unique and that this is the most direct like contradiction to the LIO liberal national inter, liberal international order, uh, where you're seeing like Western Northern your uh, nations being attacked. Uh, I think what has historically been the case is under the liberal national order, it's fully okay to invade uh, nations where the people aren't white, they aren't Christian, they're, uh, you know, poor, you know, they're generally, that that's totally okay with the liberal national order, whether it be Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, Libya, series of other conflicts. Uh, I think what you are seeing to some extent is that while all of those should prove the liberal international order is bad or wrong or what have you, they don't because we're okay with that. I think what you see in this instance is antagonization within a European nation, a global north nation, forces people to really think about how the liberal international order yeah. operates and if it can even exist or does exist or has ever existed. Yeah, I mean, violence is everywhere, right? Yeah. Like, Israel, Palestine's existed for years, right? The conflict and the violence on that's a massive scale. There's also domestic violence in the U.S. too. But, 
Yeah, but that's whatever. We'll just talk about international for a second. Like, the, perhaps the reason that um, the crisis feels so profound for people um, um, is that it's it's an identity question. Perhaps people find stability in the U.S. being uh, the primary global power, and they don't necessarily find that um, when that narrative becomes deconstructed by a country like Russia, who doesn't want to cooperate with that international order, who has been um, sort of aggressive towards them in the past. So I think that um, there is a psychological effect to this conflict that might be distinct. Um, this, uh, on top of the fact that Ukrainians are you know, predominantly white and Ukraine is seen as a European country. Um, so sort of the boundaries of Europe are becoming redrawn, I think is the narrative or the understanding by the American public. And that becomes scary, um, I think, um, for people who wanted to believe in the project of hegemony uh, and believe in the project of unipolarity. Um, fortunately, it seems like those things are declining. Yeah, I think the next topic I want to bring up, the next question about this Ukraine conflict is going to be a very hard one. It's going to be kind of irresolvable and loaded in uh, a word, um, which is that what is the long, long game here? I guess what is the how do we resolve just the question of Russian aggression? If that makes any sense. So I think that there are several different moving factors here. I think that, you know, Jack alluded to it being almost psychological and a national issue, which is something I agree with. But perhaps certainly psychoanalytical. Perhaps psychoanalytical. Perhaps this does exist in the imaginary register. <laughs> perhaps it's inevitable. You know, that's the kind of the point there. I, I, but I think that, you know, there are, there are ways we could abate it and reduce it and kind of prevent it from becoming a problem. So, you know, obviously these Russian sanctions are having a absolutely devastating effect on the Russian economy. I don't think we can imagine exactly how bad it is. Like, R- Russia's, Russians are going to lose their money, their access to resources. They are pretty much going to have to become entirely dependent on themselves, which for an international economy in the world, in the year 2022 is going to be <laughs> nearly impossible, right? And so I think that, you know, there is the potential that, the, well, there is a certainty that we will see mass unemployment and probably thus mass social unrest. Is there the potential for regime change in the long term? Is there, some, is there a chance that Putin is replaced? And what will that look like? Is that something that we should be striving for? Will that <laughs> resolve Russian aggression? Or how will Putin react? So I think, you know, getting the right takes on these Yeah, questions. so I think that's sort of an interesting question about, you're right, that the sanctions are going to be devastating. One thing that is worth noting about Russia is that compared to other economies that are deeply integrated into the global, to sort of global marketplaces, Russia is more self-reliant, more autarkic than most of them, in part because of the 2014 sanctions, in part because of what Putin's wanted to do. The other thing Russia has that is unique is massive currency and gold reserves. Um, But at the same time, yeah, obviously they need to be in the global Western economy. One thing I will point out is that with like oil, like Germany need, like a cold spell for Germany could mean not heating, like right now could mean not heating all the houses because of these sanctions. Like there's risks because within the West as well. Uh, But do do I think I'll see regime change in the long term because of this? Uh, No, I think Putin, historically, when you look at sanctions, whether it be Cuba, Iran, uh, Iraq, Syria, you don't see uh, Gaddafi and uh, Libya, you don't see people turning against the leader. Castro has always remained deeply popular, so has the Ayatollah. It's varied a bit more in Iran. Again, Syria has been a bit different. Gaddafi has remained fairly popular through his time. Uh, Saddam was never that popular, but it did not force regime change, that's for certain. It just made the people hungry. Uh, Which, you know, sort of creates this scenario where a country's just starving, but there's not real change happening. Like, Putin has strong control in his country. But one thing I think, and you might make this point I would don't know, that makes it sort of unique in Russia is that more than any of those countries I just named, it has these oligarchs who do assert a large amount of power. Um, and sanctions on them and personally, like, going after these people are more likely to create conflict because these kind of people are the ones who can ask for turf political movements that actually have the chance for regime which is exactly what you saw in 2014 in Ukraine. Yeah, so you think that the only hope for regime change is through the oligarchs? Yeah, effectively. Okay. I think it's the astroturf uh, political movement. My other question is that, well, I've got, I guess, kind of a rapid fire of questions here. So do you think that the sanctions could potentially force the oligarchs to to attempt regime change? I think it's possible, but not super likely for a couple of reasons. One, I think they're worried about what would a regime change look like. Like, Russia's a massive country, and Putin's been pretty in, like, 
Putin's made it so it's pretty easy for the oligarchs in a world where like regime change happens. Like, what happens to Russia? Does it become more liberal and like anti-oligarchs? Does it kind of become more social democratic? Uh, so that's sort of a risk that I think they face. I think the other thing is that unlike in Ukraine, where the oligarchs continued and continue to this day to assert a lot of power over the president, over the leaders, Putin inverted that and was able to take his power over them. So a lot of them have it's. Like in a lot of the other nations where you see powerful oligarchs, you see that those oligarchs are the ones who are able to institute change. Putin was very good at making it so he was the one who was able to institute change over the oligarchs. So what you're seeing instead of in 2014 with the color revolution in Ukraine, where these people are sort of overthrowing something that they're already above, they the oligarchs would effectively be below Putin doing this revolution, which would be, I think, making its risks less likely, albeit still something that could happen. That makes sense. My other question is that uh, I'm sure you would agree that this will result in mass unemployment. Yes. Do you think it will result in mass social unrest? Uh, yes and no. I think people will become more willing to or more likely to experience social unrest. But what you tend to see and when you look at nations that have created, had to deal with sanction regimes in the past, is that the government historically turns to national employment. Uh, which, if Putin is capable of doing, whether that be Cuba with, you know, sort of following Marxist Leninist doctrine that makes a little bit more sense, uh, Iran, you sort of see there's more willingness to do that. Or at least the government just gets more repressive and kills the people who are rising up, and that stops the protests, which is what you see with Saddam or, um, to some extent, Bashar al-Assad or Gaddafi. Um, which sort of... I think there is a risk of social unrest. I don't think it's likely without massive oligarchic backing in, you know, the extent that Western NGOs are still in Russia without their backing and, you know, their friends in Langley, uh, there, you, you, I don't think there would be any result of the social unrest. Okay. And you, so you don't think that the, the target of that social unrest will be Putin or I think the oligarchs? It, I think what you see, a few things is one, a lot of times sanctions just like make people mad at the West. Like this is yeah. huge in Iran. Like, yeah. Every time we sanction Iran, like the country's pro-West support goes down, especially among the emerging middle class. Yeah. Um, so like that's part of it, and then also I think to the extent that protests will happen against Putin, I think they will just be put down. Okay, that makes sense. Jack, do you have any observations there you want to add? Um, probably Russian uh, instability uh, is probably caused by liberalism. Um, I think that. Um, the failure uh, to incorporate Russia into the global economy is probably um, an example of this. So I would say that the long term, if we're really talking about long term and want to talk about problems um, that are um, structural problems that exist between the U.S. and Russia, I'd look there. Um, and also look at this like identity question. I think that that's still important. Um, so like, do I know if a G change will happen because of sanctions now? It's not really what I'm focusing about perhaps. Yeah. Um, I think that the main problem is that there is going to be um, some level of domestic instability in Russia because of um, so the sanctions like even if it does cause regime change I don't think that new regime will be any less um, assertive perhaps maybe it'll be slightly less so but I think that um, when you sanction a country and make the people starve like usually that's not a good look internationally um, and it certainly doesn't make those people like you anymore and it probably expands the revisionist feelings amongst the populace, right? Um, so I would say that um, sanctions are cool. Um, I don't know. Maybe perhaps the... Maybe perhaps... I, I think the U.S. should, like, pick a side on this question and be, like, really anti-Russia or not care at all. Um, I think the... Telling the middle line is not really something that's going to resolve the issue here. Um, and I think that um, it is important to understand that long term, the U.S. can't really bend Russia any one particular direction. And when we've tried to do that in other countries, it's failed. So I think that instead we should um, have an international politics and probably economy too that is distinct from the one that we have now yeah. that causes problems to arise in the first place. Um, otherwise, I think that international conflicts like this are going to be inevitable. Yeah, I think... Yeah. I, th I think maybe like, yeah, like the, the scope of this conflict will be determined by the specific policies. Like, I, 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 I doubt that 
think Russia will um, cause some sort of nuclear war through aggression, but um, I do think that uh, conflicts like this, which are important uh, for a lot of reasons, one being that there's a lot of violence that happens because of these conflicts, which sort of seems like something that people don't care about, like a lot of Ukrainian people are being dis placed and also dying straight up from this conflict, um, perhaps we should try to avoid um, these geopolitical chess games and instead uh, try to embrace something different. Yeah, I think one thing I'll say here is that like, I think a lot of it is like the fecklessness of liberalism is like an inevitable issue here. Uh, that just like, and Asher obviously disagrees here, that like ultimately breeds these sort of conflicts and that's just like an inevitable outcome. Uh, the other thing I think I will say about, you know, American foreign policy, then we'll throw it to Asher really fast, is basically since the fall of the Soviet Union, almost every American foreign policy thing we've dealt with has been what the CIA calls blowback, which is the uh, when the U.S. foreign policy does something to try and cause something and the opposite happens, whether that be, uh, you know, we sanction Saddam and then we end up invading Iraq and then Iraq develops terrorists, we support Mujahideen in Afghanistan and then they become the Taliban. We try and sanction Cuba and then Cuba becomes more uh, supportive of Castro. You know, a series of things like this, right? And I think ultimately the United States has continuously dealt with blowback. And this is an example of blowback where the U.S. antagonized Russia. They've done this. And I think what I worry about is sanctioned regime just being another way in which 15, maybe not even that many years down the line, there's another blowback event that causes worse issues. The my, my, so my take here, and this is probably where we can cut it off, is that I think that the sanctions now are serving two purposes. Maybe one is that it put, pressures Putin to come to the uh, negotiation table as we talked about before but it also you know kind of fingers crossed the west is like maybe it'll chief regime change so i think that the way we can kind of triangulate those two positions is wait until the end of negotiations and by then i think we'll have a much better picture of how, what will be the effect of the sanctions domestically in russia and if it looks like there is hope that uh there there is going to be some sort of change and that putin will no longer be in power or that you know russian aggression will be uh, russian policy will fundamentally change that we should stick to our guns um, but if not and then we should probably re recall the sanctions i'll probably make a prediction um i think that uh, putin has so far shown that rationality isn't that important <laughs> um, and i think that this is the important thing for this conflict right and this is what is I guess my entire take has been centered around, which is just that Putin sees this as an important thing for Russian identity and his stability as a political leader. He also probably just thinks it's a good thing to do, like in his brain. I'm not sure, but um, I, I think that that's probably true, right? I think that he finds uh, this Russian identity to be assertive in contrary to the U.S. in the world where the U.S. is sort of isolating Russia, which is, um, I guess, why I feel like um, the inevitable like soft international order stuff like World Bank, um, UN, stuff like that is not necessarily going to resolve the core antagonism here, which is, well, I'd argue it's probably two things. One, it's the identity question, the perception that Russia wants to see itself as a world power um, against the U.S. Um, and also the U.S. being uh, a hegemon that wants to preserve its legacy. The second thing is just liberalism itself, the the fact that people are unsatisfied with the system will sort of drive these conflicts in the first place. Um, so I think that the sanctions question is not that important. And I think that Putin will do whatever um, he thinks. It, he'll break the levers of rationality. And I think that a lot of Russian citizens might do this too, um, in the sense that there is some national importance to this conflict. Yeah, I think I'll say one thing about liberalism and give it to Asher to do what he wants with, which is uh, I think I agree with Jack, that a lot of this issue is sort of reactions to the just like, as I said earlier, fecklessness of liberalism and the way that it just like fundamentally can't address so many issues. I, I think what Jack sort of has a point at and maybe he's getting at a little bit, and I agree with if it is what he's getting at, um, is that I think in the modern world, when people get angry with you know the liberal order, they don't turn to class politics or uh, you know important sort of international solidarity, but they turn to hard right uh, nationalism uh, and yeah. sort of 
solidar- fascistic solidarism that yeah. it creates more you know, social conflicts. And you see this sort of in Russia early with the fall of the Soviet Union with the Nazgul's and Putin sort of takes up this place uh, that sort of continues to exist. You know, the Liberal Democrats and other parties like this, even, um, uh, you know, the Western-backed, uh, you know, Russian liberal was hated. Like, Boris Yeltsin? No. Um, who's the... Navinsky, what is his name? Oh, Alexei Navalny? Yeah, Alexei Navalny was like... He, like, protested against giving food to people in the Caucasus. He's like... He was horribly racist. Like... Yes. Uh, like... What you see is a lot of these reactions are, like, vaguely fascistic, I think. <laughs> and I think there's going to be sort of a rise in that. And I think that's a big fear that we're dealing yeah. with. Yeah. yeah the, the, there's a massive problem. Uh, that, that's sort of what we're seeing with countries all around the world is the... Uh, neoliberal failure to respond to rising nationalism and fascism. Uh, I think Trump is a decent example of this, right? We can't, um, people feel this sense of insecurity. Um, the U.S. is failing and they tend to go back to narratives, um, sort of constructing America as something that, a nation that is lost, right? And I think that in Russia, this is also true. And I think that this is why we're seeing a quite significant rise of fascism in Russia historically, right, is that um, the, the economic system has failed them, so um, therefore they feel a lot of insecurity um, about that um, in, in, in that regard. The only thing, the last thing I want to say here, and I'm sure this is going to stir up a whole new conversation. So, uh, so maybe, that's maybe I should say idea. it. But I think that, uh, like, the way that Ryan and Jack might be, um, the thing that they might be discounting is that I think that nationalism is inevitable, that it is going to occur in every country, that it's going to dictate policy in well, to a large extent yeah. and that it must be used as a tool therefore to you're, achieve you're right like better ends so. I mean yeah we're all right right if we all ground ourselves in like Carl Schmidt or something like yeah obviously liberalism is feckless which ultimately leads to these sort of state of exceptions where you know heart these kind of conflicts develop right and you agree even if you don't realize that's sort of what you're referencing with the <laughs> tools of nationalism if Carl Schmidt was a Nazi that was yeah. his solution Nazi that's so. why I think it's funny um but yeah like, well but to be clear which is exactly why you know the the only person to make these arguments are not Nazis you can believe this at rough wing everybody's made this Schmidt Schmidt is right about the state of exception or right about the way in which nationalism is sort of the issues within liberalism and ultimately he's a great example of why liberalism causes this turn to hard right nationalism that is inevitably going to lead to these sort of the left wing the left wing uh, utopia maybe you are looking for can only ever be achieved and has only ever been you know attempted to be achieved through nationalism. Like, no, or, no, I don't think that nationalism a class is politics that at the end of the day resembles nationalism. I'm okay with that. You're it. right. Okay. Even, I mean, Castro, Castro, sorry, before he was a Marxist-Leninist, was just kind of a vague social nationalist, right? <laughs> like, you see these sort of, a lot of left-wing politics develop out of nationalism. You're completely right about yeah. that. Um, I think our Jack and I's point here is that what we're seeing in the modern era is in the absence of an organized international left, you're seeing all the only source for these people to turn to is what Schmidt turned to, which is Nazism, or not exactly Nazism, but some sort of fascism. far-right yeah. ideology that borders so on fascism. I want to push you there. What do you think a, a left-wing international movement looks like? What does it achieve, and what are the examples of it? Like, Well, I mean, obviously, <laughs> if you're asking me to be like cynical about my own politics, you're right. Like, yeah, it's not going to be okay, achieved. But I guess but, my like, point is that... I I guess my point is that I don't believe that you should embrace a politics that you are pessimistic about its about its ability to ever be achieved. Like okay. this might sound. Hold on, I might be phrasing this slightly wrong. The issue, wrong. After- but like I see that like kind of. There are solutions to this crisis, and there is also ways we can make the world a utopia, but those, those are not going to come to fruition because of human psychological biases that like maybe could be changed through CRISPR, but they cannot be changed through politics. And so we need to recognize those and kind of recognize the own limits of, the poli- of our politics. I, the issue, Asher, is you're right that like a, po- like a politics that is hard to achieve is not necessarily like a 
best thing to hold because they are hard to achieve. But I think what you're inevitably going to be seen is when you deal with just technocratic, and this gets back to the flaws of liberalism, is that when you used to do these technocratic, and we're very far away from Ukraine now, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> in some ways, we're closer than ever. <laughs> the flaws of like the liberal order is that in these sort of continual micro fixes like will never create a sustainable system so you're right that like attempting to create an international left is hard and the organizations that attempt to do it whether that be you know some random socialist party the you know left-wing leaders that have formed dm25 or the progressive international these sort of organizations that don't really do anything and have a few thousand members and people like me like to read what they say and retweet them uh but that doesn't do anything you're right um you're i think what you need to have a politics that is somewhat just hoping or dreaming or focusing on trying to create a world that allows for at least some sort of stable system that prevents this kind of right because you're right nationalism to some extent is inevitable it is somewhat of a psychological factor and i think what you have to see is that has to be utilized by people on the left to prevent a turn to the right okay i think we can conclude it there um, there's certainly a lot more debate to be had, but I don't think we could do that today. That concludes this episode of 440 Views from the Hill. Stay tuned for further episodes in the coming weeks. We would like to give a special thanks to Mr. Clark for sponsoring this independent study and Jack Keller for the theme music. We'd also like to thank our very special guest and resident psychoanalyst, Jack Young, for joining us today. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>